2: Welcome to New Books in History. I'm Patrick Riley. Today we are talking to Stuart Schrader about his new book, Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, out this year with University of California Press. Thanks for joining us, Stuart.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So to start, can, can you say a bit about your intellectual career and what brought you to this project and perhaps a few words about the the, the works that you found
1: most influential in conceiving it? Sure. So in terms of the works that were influential to me, um, I, I have this this memory of the first the very first thing I downloaded from ProQuest when I you know gained access to a university library system at NYU when I started graduate school was, a dissertation from NYU by Tracy Tullis called uh, Vietnam at Home, a Vietnam at Home Policing the Ghettos in the Counterinsurgency Era. And Tullis worked with some uh, faculty at NYU, like Marilyn Young and Robin D.G. Kelly. And I think she finished the dissertation in 1999. Um, So that dissertation... I think is is one of these it's one of these dissertations that kind of circulates you know in a sub subterranean way because it never was published as a as a book um, but a lot of people I think increasingly over the years have found it and and it's been really useful in it and it was it was really useful to me especially because it prompted me to look at some sources that I may never have otherwise considered or or or, or looked at both archival sources and published sources. Um, and I think I learned about Tracy Tullis' dissertation from Forrest Hilton, who's a Latin Americanist who was also at NYU. Um, and I think that if I'm remembering correctly, I learned about, um, I, I, I from, from Hilton, I learned about Tullis. And I think I also discovered Christian Parenti's book, Lockdown America, which, um, Tullis and, and Parenti write uh, some similar uh, ideas. You know, just a, just a few sentences, but those few sentences were enough um, that convinced me to look at the police professional liter- literature, p- particularly Police Chief Magazine, which is kind of one of the most important sources I look at. So, so those works mostly came out at the end of the '90s, the beginning of the two thousands. If I had to guess, and I, you know, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, um, you know, September 11th, 2001, kind of um, changed a lot of the conversations that were happening among scholars, and and that was why the that line of inquiry kind of closed off then. But what, what's so interesting, of course, is that after September 11th, counterinsurgency becomes a massive topic, but it was sort of starting to be framed in new ways so the ways people were looking at it before 2001 um, maybe didn't you know, match with with contemporary discussions just a few years later and in addition to um, the works by those figures that now are about 20 years old there were also works that were um, that came 20 years before that coming out of the new, new left uh, figures like Mike Clare and Tom Loeb, who, you know, they they wrote about U.S. police assistance overseas, the Office of Public Safety, and they really did what I would consider today to still be phenomenal research in terms of how, you know, both accurate they were and politically astute they were even though they didn't have access to the declassified files that are available now that, you know, when I, when I've looked at the declassified files, I was, you know, just kind of um, impressed that I was, I would just confirm a lot of their interpretations using documents they didn't have available to them. So um, Tom Loeb, I think, spoke to a number of public safety advisors in his research process, and some other there are some other folks who who also did that kind of research, actually speaking to some of the you know figures that that come up in my book, Martha Huggins is another person. and um i so i I drew a lot on on their on their research uh, that was you know now is is basically several decades old, but I think is still really good and and really stands up. And you know, I guess I would just say that perhaps what is, you know, what might be germane to talk about for me personally is just that I have a kind of collector's instinct, um, which is maybe, you know, helpful as a historian, but also a little bit burdensome as a historian because it just means that I'm constantly searching for new sources, new primary sources, new secondary sources, trying to track down, you know, the most kind of obscure leads and, you um, you know, usually in in my everyday life, this this translates into you know collecting records. Um, but in my professional life, it means that I uh, have you know I, I'm I'm forever unsatisfied in my in my search for for information, and I'm always trying to you know dig a bit deeper and a bit deeper, and you know go down dark pathways and see where they take me and see what I can find. So. I think that's, you know, in, in a sense, um, that's partially what, what started this process is, is just, you know, finding out about, um, Tracy Tullis's dissertation along with some other sources and then just kind of, you know, following through the, the footnotes and the citations and going in, in every, every direction that I could possibly go that they prompted. And of course it didn't always lead me in useful directions. There were a lot of dead ends that I encountered along the way, but. Wonderful.
2: Uh, I'd like to return to that kind of question of of digging up primary sources later, but uh, for now we can uh, jump into the book. So you you begin the book by discussing how legal racial equality in the U.S. and global decolonization forced a change in the racial logic of policing. Um, How did police institutions... Try to reassert legitimacy in this tumultuous period while maintaining their mission of racial order making
1: yeah, I think this this coincidence was was really crucial, and I take on board a lot of the new insights or recent insights about the cold war in the in the literature, insofar as it's important to understand the Cold War as um violent as taking place largely in the so-called third world. Um, and and I think that also, you know, we, we we might tend to think of the the Cold War era as the moment of the United States rising to kind of you know geopolitical primacy or hegemony across the globe. And of course I think that's true, but I think that it's important for us to think through what the mechanics of that were and actually how constrained in some ways, or even trapped the United States was by, uh, a set of forces or, or, or relations, uh, you know, on one side countries that were emerging from colonialism as the European empires collapsed, um, these 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 countries, especially those with powerful nationalist and independence movements, of course were not eager to have the US come in and abrogate abrogate their sovereignty. So that meant that the US had to, you know, avoid getting the appearance of neocolonialism in its in its relations with these new nations. And as we know, even to invoke the term neocolonialism suggests that there were a lot of uh, intellectuals, activists, revolutionaries on the ground in these places who were not hoodwinked. They saw the U.S. um, as a neocolonial power. But those nationalist movements, left-wing movements that um, were eager to call out sort of evidence of neocolonialism, they became the objects of counterinsurgency. They were the targets of the police who were being assisted by the United States. So the US was trying to control them, even as I would argue that the United States was constrained by them. And then if there was maybe a third side that that kind of trapped or constrained the United States, it would be the black freedom movement in the United States that, of course, on one hand, was making common cause with movements overseas for national liberation. And on the other hand, was, of course, decrying police violence at home. So I I think that all of these kind of boxed the United States in, even as it was unquestionably the most powerful you know, nation on the planet, emer- emerging into um, this this new situation. And yeah, the the emergence of legal racial equality. With the civil rights movement in the United States, basically, you know, from say fifty four to nineteen sixty eight, this changes the parameters of policing in the United States to some degree. Police themselves felt constrained by uh, freedom movements, by the critiques they were getting on multiple sides. And one of the things that I tried to show in the book is that, you know, overseas, of course, police trainers you know, they didn't have to abide by the U.S. Constitution, but they did have to operate in places where familiar U.S. racial ideology did not necessarily offer that much of a guide for how to do the job, where, you know, police forces were not simply white agencies repressing black and brown populations, as may have been the case in the United States. So policing expertise overseas in that process started to Basically, become what I would consider more racially liberal. Um, it would perhaps narrate itself as colorblind, although I, I I would only use that that term in kind of scare quotes. Um, so, in that first chapter that we're talking about, I you know I sort of try to tease out the features of this conjuncture that showing by showing that. You know, the police experts overseas were kind of bearers or avatars of a kind of form of global racial liberalism that we associate with Cold War civil rights, Um, even as I think the fact that they were police shows that they were necessarily going to mark the kind of limitations of the project of Cold War civil rights by creating a repressive instrument Overseas that would create constrain freedom and equality, you know, enforce the foundations of capitalist social order, while at home, you know, the overseas experience also rehearsed um, the the necessity of liberalizing their racial attitudes and ideologies and vocabularies, and all all the while, underneath this kind of changed. Uh, surface appearance and the actual practical um, integration of police forces at home, the point was that beneath it all, the police were able to maintain the types of repressive tactics and um, their abilities to keep social movements in check or even undermine and destroy social movements and movements for equality, uh, regardless of what the kind of you know surface or veneer of of racial liberalism might have argued
2: i think you do a good job in the book of establishing at the outset that it was not clear at the end of World War II that police assistance would be a central method of U.S. imperial power. And even when overseas police assistance began under Eisenhower, it was hampered by poor interagency communication and threatened by other policy options. What changes made civilianized police assistance an integral part of U.S. policy in the period that you're describing and who was involved in that process?
1: You know, the United States arguably has been engaged in overseas police assistance for as long as it has had an overseas empire. Meaning, you know, basically back to the turn of the twentieth century with occupations in places like the Philippines and elsewhere. Um, But the the agencies involved back then tended to be military agencies. And during the post World War II era, civilian agencies take primacy. And yes, it's the case that in the, at the end of 1954, the Eisenhower administration um, starts to formalize police assistance. It, it had already been operating in in a, a small and mostly covert fashion and they, they start to formalize it and make it more overt, meaning that the United States is going to sign bilateral agreements with the countries that are, are receiving the police assistance, that are, you know, they weren't necessarily touted publicly all the time, but it was going to be a publicly recognized um, situation. So... It was, however, the case that the resources available for it were not great. So from, say, 54 to 1962, as this program of police assistance under civilian auspices is kind of gathering strength, it's continually hampered by insufficient resources, as you said, you know, kind of interagency miscommunications and um, a lot of competition. And what I argue in the book is that police assistance gains a steady footing in 1962 with the creation of the Office of Public Safety, which is housed in the Agency for International Development. And it gains this this secure footing mainly because a lot of the kind of competitors within the national security bureaucracy who have different ideas about how to prevent communist revolution – in other countries basically lose interagency bureaucratic battles. And one reason they lose is simply that events like the Bay of Pigs invasion happened, which was a spectacular failure. And, and it sort of sidelined and discredited a whole range of officials in the CIA and elsewhere. And so once those officials are sidelined, it kind of creates a vacuum. And standing there ready to fill that vacuum is a guy named Robert Comer, Robert W. Comer, who was a National Security Council official. And he had been pressing for the expansion of police assistance for years by that point already. In the 1950s, he worked for the CIA and he came into the Kennedy administration working for McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor. And Comer... You know, if you look in his papers, as I did, you find that over and over and over again to anybody who will listen, he says, hey, let's beef up our police assistance program. This is the best way to ensure that uh, communism will be contained in, in the third world. So. You know he fights with the people, and he's he's a pugnacious, uh, no nonsense guy. And he he fights with the people who are advocating the types of operations that are like the Bay of Pigs and and other um, what I would call offensive guerrilla operations. And he says, "Look, this is just not going to be successful in countering insurgency. The worst case scenario is something like the Bay of Pigs, where." There's just a massive defeat and a huge embarrassment for the United States. The best case scenario is is just further destabilization of the situation that might kind of you know foster more of the uh, so-called communist insurgency that that the U.S. is trying to actually prevent. So he ultimately wins, and the Office of Public Safety comes into being. And what's crucial for the Office of Public Safety. Is that it has its own budget line that's relatively insulated and can't really be easily cut by, um, you know, other other officials or other agencies and bureaucracies. And it also has a centralized authority structure where there is, you know, the Washington headquarters of the Office of Public Safety, which has a more or less direct line via Comer via the National Security Council to the Oval Office, and so. Um, it was housed in the Agency for International Development, which is the Civilian Development Agency. And people at the top of the uh, hierarchy in AID were not always happy that they had this uh, police assistance arm housed within their agency. Um, and every time they tried to kind of rein it in or constrain it or cut its budget, somebody, either Comer or you know somebody in his... Um, in in his kind of echelon would say no way you can't cut its budget. Um, so that that gave the platform to the Office of Public Safety for relatively um, consistent expansion from 1962 to around 1969. And then, and then it starts to shrink a little bit, in part because the Nixon administration has some, you know, slightly different ideas, but it it still is operating until Um, 1974,
2: 1975. You profile the average police advisor and what their itinerary would be like. You say that it was quite different from domestic policing. Where were these advisors going? How many of them were there? And what exactly are they trying Mm -hmm. to do once they have their boots on the ground?
1: Yeah. So the public safety advisors were drawn generally from the ranks of police agencies across the United States. But I think that to understand what would incentivize somebody to leave, you know, oftentimes a relatively easy police job in a lot of places um, in the United States and you know, uproot themselves and travel around the globe, there's basically a couple explanations. I mean, one, one clear incentive is that being a public safety advisor paid much better than being a regular police officer or even a command officer in a lot of cities and towns within the United States. On the other hand, a lot of these advisors had prior experience overseas, whether they were veterans of World War II or, uh, or the Korean conflict. Um, they, some of them may have had prior experience in other federal law enforcement agencies, um, border patrol, customs, some FBI, and some came out of intelligence. Oftentimes if they came out of the military, if they came out of the army, they had some kind of special operations background. So, you know, and then some of them maybe they they just you know were trying to flee a, a you know a bad marriage or some kind of unhappy home life and so the idea of going overseas appealed in that way so generally what i would say is that this on the one hand indicates that we shouldn't necessarily consider police in the united states in the 1950s to be these kind of um you know unworldly Rubes or bumpkins, um, actually, a lot of them already had ex- experience overseas. I mean, obviously, World War II took a lot of people from the United States across the oceans. So, but they do go overseas, and yes, their work overseas is is fairly different from police work domestically. On the one hand, they weren't as police advisors; they were not. Supposed to engage in practical police work, they were there to advise the uh, officers of the aid recipient country agencies so now that didn't necessarily always work out and there were, I found in the archives some you know fascinating and troubling examples of public safety advisors kind of taking matters into their own hands, oftentimes with, uh, kind of shocking levels of violence, but on the whole, that was not what they did on the whole, what they did was, um, their work happened in classrooms, in offices. And, um, you know, if, if, if they did kind of on the ground training in operations, you know, what it would look like would be that the. You know, aid recipient country would set up, say, a roadblock and the U.S. advisor would stand there and say, "Okay, when you conduct a car search, this is what you should do. And so there are photos that I've seen in the archives of, you know. Car searches, where you have, say, three South Vietnamese police officers conducting a search of a car, looking for contraband, looking for weapons, whatever. And there's, you know, a, a U.S. public safety advisor standing there, in uh, not in a police uniform, in you know, in, in civilian clothes you know, a, sh- a button down shirt and so forth. And he's standing there kind of watching over and presumably giving advice, um, sometimes through a translator, sometimes not, if if they had requisite language skills. So I do think that, that police work in the United States, the jobs that they held as police officers, in one sense, it was good training for going overseas because police work is often very varied and requires kind of a lot of on the ground quick decision making and flexibility. On the other hand, they would have to apply that quick thinking and flexibility in a totally different way, because they weren't necessarily engaging in police work, but they were encountering a lot of unfamiliar situations, um, interacting with different people, new people on a daily basis, traveling all across the country. Um, Oftentimes, you know, they would, they would have to travel in, you know, really remote places and and if you read the accounts that some of them give of, of what the job was like on a day-to-day basis um, you know it would it would be uh, we 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 drove for for 48 hours on a rutted muddy road to a you know provincial capital and met with the police chief there and took an assess, you know, did an assessment of the police capabilities in that provincial capital. And then we got back in our car and drove, you know, 48 hours back, um, you know, on a muddy road and, and it was exhausting. And, and we also saw some interesting wildlife and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it did have a little bit of a kind of um, almost touristic vibe to some of the work they did. And one thing that went along with that is that, that I found that's, I I find really interesting and maybe would be something that somebody else could investigate more closely is that a lot of them became game hunters while they were traveling across the globe in in these countries. And, and they would oftentimes write memos to each other about their kind of hunting achievements their hunting quarries. And Byron Engel, who's the director of the Office of Public Safety, uh, he was a, he was a, a big time hunter. And his uh, collection of, of trophies from hunting was kind of legendary. And in part, that was because he traveled so widely across the globe. I mean, he, during the Cold War, he was probably one of the most widely traveled American officials, you know, of, of all American officials. Um, and he would oftentimes try to find time to go hunting while he was um, also, you know, meeting with various, you know, intelligence uh intelligence directors in other countries, police executives, and so forth.
2: I'm glad that he was able to kill the two birds with one stone while he was there. (laughs) Regarding your point about uh, Byron Engel and kind of his itineraries around the globe, I found it interesting that he was emphatic about the influence of his time in Japan during the post-war occupation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the professionalization of police departments in the U.S. was shaped by the post-war occupations of Japan and West Germany. I think when we think about counterinsurgency, the development of counterinsurgency and the development of of policing strategy, uh, those might not be the first places that come to our minds.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the post-World War II occupations are beginning to get a little bit more attention in the scholarship, and they're certainly ripe for more attention. Because I think that in essence, in addition to the prior experience of colonial state building in places like the Philippines, really the the experience of state building that the United States engaged in during those occupations was really crucial, and a lot of the people who were involved in that work um you know stuck around in in various bureaucracies in the united states. so so I think that it it would be worth looking more closely at them. Engel had been a a kind of rising star in the Kansas City municipal police department in the late 1930s and through World War II. And because he was a rising star, he sort of came to the attention of some important figures. And when uh, the Allied powers occupied Japan, one crucial task, and the same was true in Germany, was to reform the police forces there. And the principle was basically that these countries had these highly authoritarian centralized police agencies that were you know controlled from the top and the united states felt that part of the reason that they were able to be so repressive and totalitarian authoritarian was because of this centralized control of police at the top so they during the occupations they decided we're going to decentralize these police agencies so that Uh, The idea would be that, that the possibility of a new authoritarian power rising in these countries will be restrained because they won't be able to control the police centrally from the top. And of course, this is influenced by U.S. notions of federalism and decentralization and ultimately the sort of success level they have in Um, you know, creating these new decentralized police forces in these other countries uh, is probably not quite as, as strong as they would hope, would have hoped. The occupations offered testing grounds for what were often kind of unevenly implemented reforms back home, technological reforms and organizational reforms. The 1930s was a period of Dramatic police reform domestically, a place like Kansas City where Engel came from, you know, he was hired at the time when the old uh, political machine was being dismantled. And in its in the process of dismantling it, they had to fire a whole bunch of, you know, corrupt police officers and hi- hire a whole bunch of new, uh, s- you know, hopefully not corrupt police Officers and he was one of them. So this experience of um, police reform at home and this generation of people who came up in police agencies that were undergoing reform—these are the people who who staff the occupations and these are the people who are in charge of um, implementing these these types of organizational reforms overseas, as well as introducing new technologies. I mean, Engel introduces, for example um handcuffs into Japan, which were which were rarely used before the US occupation. So some of some of those types of reforms are are very basic technological um, reforms that that you know ultimately are um they're so basic that we, we might not even think of them as as all that crucial. But I think that for these US uh, officials, police experts and and so forth who went overseas, they really found that by testing some of the reforms they had already been applying at home overseas, they, you know, it gave them the sense that that their reform efforts could be really widely generalized, that they had universal applicability. And so what this meant was that when they came home, they they felt emboldened to um Generalized the reform efforts across the United States and really gave them the sense that, you know, police reform and professionalization was absolutely necessary and was an inherent good and so forth. I also think that it gave them, um, it gave police reform and professionalization a more distinctly political identity. In the United States, of course, the idea of reform to get rid of political machines that were corrupt was to, you know, take away the political control over the police from these, you know, municipal bosses. Transferred to Germany and Japan, it took on a a different political cast, which was that the idea was to, you know, smash and, and destroy the, you know, fascist authority structure and also to create a police force that could... Be able to undermine and even eliminate insurgent communist movements. This was crucial in both both Germany and Japan. So I think that when they 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 came back home, the idea of using this um, type of police reform that was supposed to you know liquidate political influence, in order you know using it in order to um, control political movements at the grassroots, um, I think that really stuck with them. And in some sense, it's, it's almost, um, impossible to explain the say next 20 or 30 years of United States repression of domestic left-wing social movements without the, you know, having an understanding that the police themselves understood that, um, the reform efforts they, they were undertaking to, uh, Remove police from political control could also be redeployed for a different type of political control, if that makes sense.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: At the beginning of one of your chapters, you describe the film, The First Line of Defense, police training video. In addition to the training and the equipment that was circulated by the police advisors that you're talking about, your book does describe a diverse array of police media. Could you talk a little bit about this film that I found very weird and interesting? And then also any other media that stuck out to you as examples of the global circuit of police assistance? And then also from a more kind of methodological standpoint, how do you look for these things? Do they come up in weird places?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, the the film First Line of Defense was created by the Office of Public Safety, um, it was filmed in um, in in Panama, and I, I I watched it at the National Archives in in Maryland. Unfortunately, it's not digitized. It's only on film strip, um, and I would love to digitize it. So, if there are you know any deep pocketed listeners who want to donate to the cause of digitizing first line of defense, you know, uh, you can contact me, please. Um, it's, It's fascinating because it's basically meant to be a training film to show to police around the globe about what the eruption of a communist insurgency, a guerrilla insurgency is going to look like. And then in turn, how to successfully control it and kind of stamp it out. And so, you know, it's a, it's a teaching film. The it's, it's got, uh, it, the, 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 the quote unquote actors in it are actual police who the United States were training. So they had them play the roles, both of the kind of insurgents and the, um, police who are in charge of, of counterinsurgency. And, The film, you know, it draws heavily on the prevalent understandings at the time in the early 60s of what insurgency would look like that are drawn from the teachings of Mao. So it it kind of elaborates this notion that there are are specific stages to insurgency. And um, the interesting thing about the way it's framed in stages is that it's, you know, it of course starts with what seemed to be, a, what seems to be a relatively innocuous kind of amount of political agitation, including, as I mentioned in the book, um, you know, the writing of of graffiti of, of political slogans and symbols on walls. And to me, what this just kind of indicates is that a lot of these counterinsurgency experts and, um, the the police the, the the police of other countries, the lessons they're learning is that what we would perhaps consider in the United States to be constitutionally protected expressions of free speech, you know, that these might actually be tantamount to insurgency. And so the whole argument of the first line of defense film is to really nip in the bud any um any risk of insurgency and the, the earliest signals are going to be, you know, rallies, handing out leaflets, um, as I said, graffiti. So it, it, you can see, lo- looking at the film, quite easily, I think, you can see how what the Office of Public Safety was teaching was pretty strong forms of repression that were really uncompromising about the risk of, of, you know, insurgency. So, you know, first line of defense is, is a film that, that a few other figures have talked about. Um, I don't think, I don't think that there, that anybody would have access to it outside of um, going to, to the National Archives, unfortunately, but yeah, the 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 Office of Public Safety did create a lot of other publications, and which I you know I draw quite heavily on its its publications, um, and some of them are akin to textbooks. Some of them are just literal translations of already existing textbooks. The kind of um, it, you know what I found in the files would be these these requests for new translations of standard policing textbooks that were, would, would have been found in any kind of um, police training facility within the United States you know translations into Arabic translations into uh, French you know so on and so forth uh, but then the Office of Public Safety creates its own its own textbooks um, and the one that I kind of use, the most as a source um is is called um the police and resources control in south vietnam or something like that um and resources control becomes a kind of key platform or a key plank in in counterinsurgency in south vietnam as well as elsewhere and the office of public safety really um is quite explicit about uh this being their kind of crucial teaching, so yeah, I I drew on a, a whole whole wide range of different sources. Um, as I mentioned, the Police Chief Magazine, which is a monthly magazine that is you know still published to this day, um, th- that magazine kind of just opened up a whole world of international connections that. I was I was able to you know when I started looking at it, I was interested to see that say in the nineteen fifties late nineteen fifties there would be an article in in the police chief magazine that would say um, this is what the police in South Vietnam or this is what the police in Thailand look like and it would kind of give a rundown of the structure and. The you know organizational dimensions, their cap- capabilities, how many officers they have, you know all these these kinds of data points. And what I realized is that those articles were were almost directly drawn from the studies that the office of public safety or its its precursors would do when they started working in in a a, a country across the you know across the ocean. And so. The 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 Police Chief Magazine is a magazine, obviously for police executives, um, mostly in the United States, but also elsewhere. And and so as I was looking at it, and I would you know, kind of trace the the names of the authors of these articles, and I would realize that they were themselves public safety advisors. Um, and then I would just kind of look for other places where those names came up. And so it was this very you know iterative process of of just kind of realizing that almost hiding in plain sight in the professional police literature, there is evidence of th- this really wide network of officers who are tra- traveling across the globe and sharing information about what's happening around the globe with, you know, the subscribers to this magazine who were thousands of police chiefs in every, you know, big city and small town across the United States. And and I think that it's just important for us to kind of step back and say, Okay, what what kind of um identity for police is being created by the sharing of this information about um you know far off police forces in in you know in distant countries what what identity for US police chiefs is being created in the process. So I try to I try to investigate that and and think through that and I think in some ways you know tracking down all of this type of ephemera and professional, the professional literature just kind of gave me a much more robust sense of how, how extensive these connections were and how um, commonplace and kind of un, um, commonplace and, and, and I don't want to say insignificant because I'm arguing that it's significant, but it it, it didn't really draw that much attention to itself. It wasn't like the police chief magazine said, hey, everybody, guess what? This month, we're going to have a report on what's happening in Vietnam. Instead, it was like every month there would be an item here, an item there that would indicate that U.S. police experts thought of what they were doing as global in scope. And they were trying to inform police within the United States about how global they possibly could be.
2: I'm, I'm reluctant to say whether we're turning back to domestic things or for, or, or the foreign theater, because obviously the, the whole crux of the book is that there is no difference. Um, <laughs> yes. you, you describe how foreign police assistance was what you call devolutionary and and discretionary empire. The war on crime also relied on federalist funding scheme that funded local police with little to no federal oversight, which created a series or a set of autonomous and overlapping jurisdictions that constitute the carceral state. How did this these influxes of of cash, equipment, and training manifest themselves differently across the country. And the carceral state literature is helpfully uh, taking a turn towards the local impact of LEA funding. Mm -hmm. And there's been a couple really interesting kind of like state-focused and city-focused studies. But how should these kind of more locally oriented case studies of the war on crime and its aftermaths effectively use an imperial perspective?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that one of the tasks for researchers going forward is to, as you say, kind of connect what we know about the importance of the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration and its funding streams that we can get from work by scholars like Elizabeth Hinton and Naomi Murakawa and others, um, you know, to connect that that funding stream to what's happening locally on the ground, and and what this entails is basically doing multi-scalar research, uh, which is is inherently challenging because the LEAA archives are incomplete. So there there are there are probably significant gaps in what we would be able to figure out in this research, but the you would have to do some kind of local research and and researching local police agencies, um, you know, at the municipal level is notoriously challenging because there oftentimes are no kind of records retention requirements. So it's almost a matter of luck as to whether a scholar might be able to gain access to archives or that archives exist. Um, And then you would have to look at the state level because the law enforcement assistance administration worked through state level agencies that kind of had the oversight and they, that did the work of distributing the the funds and doing the planning and coordination. So I looked at some of those those archives in the state of California, which of course was one of the the biggest um, operations. So yeah once you once you do this kind of multi-scalar research then you you might be able to kind of trace some of the impacts and you know I think what you would find is that the the LEAA enabled police forces to engage in new forms of training to adopt new technologies to create better coordination among kind of regional agencies um, and and then you know how that plays out on a kind of day-to-day level would would be the, the 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 research object so you know the the point for me about the the war on crime and this distribution of money and expertise from washington to the states and then down to the municipalities the point is that this design this kind of bureaucratic structure for the the dissemination of funding and expertise is The same design as the Office of Public Safety did overseas, which was to uh, take money from Washington, distribute it uh, along with expertise um, in how best to to use that money around the globe. And just as Washington didn't have a say over policing at the local level um, in the war on crime, but through its dissemination of resources, it nonetheless shapes what policing at the local level will look like. The same is true overseas insofar as Washington, again, can't really um, completely abrogate the sovereignty of aid recipient countries and tell them what to do. But of course, the aid comes with um, certain conditions and the aid also bolsters the you know, capabilities of law enforcement and repression in these places. So, so there are these really um, distinct and clear cut parallels that I draw. And one of the things that I found in my research is that it's not a coincidence or an accident that these parallels emerge. In fact, in the, in 1964, in the early efforts to think about how, um, the Johnson administration's efforts to think about how it might engage in a war on crime, there were conversations among high-level officials that invoked the Office of Public Safety as a model for how to do this. So it takes several years between 1964 and and the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968 before the the war on crime is really is is fully realized and and the LEAA is created. But despite the passage of those four years and the interim creation of a a smaller agency, um, what ends up happening is that no matter how many bureaucratic debates there are and how much the legislators argue with each other and the Johnson administration even is really pissed off that um, Congress basically rewrites its bill entirely, what you end up having after the bill passes is... uh, creation of a of a bureaucracy that looks very much like what the very first original blueprints were that drew explicitly on the model of the office of public safety so for me that that um those connections are are really important and i think um give us a a certain they open up a whole set of questions that I hope other scholars will pursue about, you know, what the the kind of fundamental um, homologies between U.S. power abroad and U.S. power domestically, um, what those homologies are, what they look like, how they work and um, how we might find them in in other domains of policymaking. Um, I I don't think that they're only um, restricted to the law enforcement bureaucracy.
2: I think that one of the
1: homologies
2: that stood out to me was the the way that broken windows policing appears in the U.S. in the '80s as this new notion, a, a challenge to the to capital intensive policing practices, as you, as you call it. And I think broken windows was just the most famous articulation of a decade of criticism of those kind of practices. Yeah, that's right. Can you talk about how these decades-old counterinsurgency practices, as pioneered by the OPS, return to the U.S. in the form of order maintenance policing? Sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I this is – so, I, yeah, I cover this in the last chapter of the book, and um, in essence, what I try to do in that chapter is to say – First of all, as I, as I kind of do throughout the book, I show that, you know, counterinsurgency as a field, as an ex, a field of expertise and as a set of principles um, and a set of bureaucratic institutions is unsettled. And there are constant debates and struggles within it for kind of institutional primacy, ideological primacy. The problem is that um, all of the contenders are not necessarily all that well informed. so. What happens is toward the end of the 60s in Rand Corporation, there is a debate about counterinsurgency and the kind of two poles of the debate as I lay out are the so-called hearts and minds approach and the so-called rational actor approach. And what I what I demonstrate in, in this discussion is that the rational actor approach ends up being successful in Within RAND Corporation, whether it's uh, you know "quote unquote" successful in terms of kind of global policy, that's that's a, a somewhat harder question to answer because basically by the time these RAND scientists elaborate their kind of you know full explanation of what you know rational rational actor rational choice counterinsurgency is going to look like you know the the war in vietnam is is winding down the us has basically been defeated that said the office of public safety for basically a decade by that point has already been advocating rational choice or rational actor counterinsurgency just without calling it that and these intellectuals at rand are basically um fairly ignorant, I would say, of what counterinsurgency is actually um, actually looks like on the ground, what US agencies are doing. And so that textbook that I mentioned a minute ago, the, the Police and Resources Control insurgency Counterinsurgency uh, in South Vietnam, or uh whatever, I'm, I'm every time I say it, it's gonna have a slightly different title, but you can get the correct one in my, in my footnotes. Um this textbook outlines the idea of um, using a kind of calibrated system of penalties and rewards in order to control how um, quote unquote insurgents or peasants are going to um, respond to constituted authority to policing um, and policing is the vehicle for implementing this this kind of system. So, the RAM scientists basically reinvent the wheel um, and and they don't they don't seem to be all that um aware of how how these policing experts who worked for the Office of Public Safety had already elaborated a very similar theory. So, so that's one part of the argument of that chapter. The other part of the argument of the chapter, you know, the book, I, whenever I, I talk about the book, I say that it ends in 74, 75, but at the end of the last chapter, I do kind of fast forward into a more recent period um, to, to, to take a look at the at the broken windows theory as a kind of coda. And I basically argue that broken windows has deep affinities... Or congruence with this, either, either if we want to call it, you know, rational choice, counterinsurgency, or uh, resources control, as the Office of Public Safety called it. And these, these deep affinities, in fact, are are somewhat unsurprising because broken windows is a neoconservative critique of liberal police reformism. And the intellectuals at RAND, who outlined the kind of rational choice model of counterinsurgency, are themselves engaged in a political battle over US foreign policy, um, over social science expertise. So again, it's, it's, I don't think that it it should be any great surprise that you find very similar ideas being um, enunciated by somebody like James Q. Wilson, who is, you know, one of the kind of leaders of the neoconservative movement domestically. Um, I don't think it's a big surprise that what he says kind of replicates what some of the counterinsurgency experts were saying you know, and 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 when I talk about some of these Rand guys, I I, I think I would put experts in quotation marks. They think they're experts. Um, I don't think it's a surprise that there are so many commonalities across what they say, because ultimately all of these arguments are only partially about policing. They're more generally about governance, state power, the relationship of the state to. Um, Vulnerable populations. The whole point of rational choice counterinsurgency and why it's why it's a repudiation of so-called hearts and minds counterinsurgency is the idea that look, uh, if you want to prevent communist revolution, uh, you can't bribe people through forms of social welfare to um, give up their their hopes of of communist revolution. You just have to penalize them when they when they stray and when they. Um, act uh, in, in, you know, behave in ways that are out of line. Uh, this is a warrant for dismantling the welfare state domestically, which, of course, is the whole project of neoconservatism. And the book more broadly, um, this this p- part of the book more broadly, um, shows, I think, that arguments that inform the neoconservative movement, whether we're looking at a figure like Wilson or a figure like um, Moynihan, or or some of the other um, in in the the cast of characters of, of that era, a lot of them, you know, they really test their ideas in conversations about foreign aid um, and what what foreign aid can be expected to achieve, and ultimately most of them repudiate foreign aid, and that you know that just. Takes on a, a highly technical veneer um, in order to address the kind of pressing problem of the day by the late 1960s, early 1970s, because counterinsurgency is the, the the key problem of that moment. But but it's 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 all part of a much broader conversation about what the role of the state should be. So broken windows policing replicates. Rational Choice Counterinsurgency insofar as Broken Windows is um, in part an argument against um, dealing with crime through anything other than, um, than intensive uh, police work and control of low-level disorder and um, the kind of uh, really strict control of behavior. This, on the one hand, within police agencies is meant as a repudiation of top down top down managerial reform efforts that have been going on as I have said since the nineteen thirties um and they're also it's also uh, not just directed internally at what police agencies are going to look like but it's 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 directed outwardly at um you know what they what they would call you know so called liberal uh, efforts to address crime through the remediation of poverty and racial inequality and so forth. Um, they basically say the Broken Windows article um, itself and people who take up this outlook, they say the same thing that the rational choice counterinsurgency theorists say, which is, look, dealing with the problem of disorder by um, giving social welfare provisions, um, Bolstering educational opportunities, employment opportunities, and so on and so on—all of that's going to take way, way, way too long to have any effect. I mean, it might be a good thing to do, but uh, who has the time for that when we have this immediate problem of for Rand insurgency, guerrilla warfare for Kelling and Wilson brook windows, um, crime and disorder in the streets? So we we just don't have the time to 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 deal to deal with these problems. Um, through, through social programming. Instead, we just have to have a, a really harsh and, um, and, um, unrestrained police response.
2: Can you discuss, uh, the critiques and activism that led to the demise of the office of public safety?
1: Yeah, sure. So as I said, the, the, the book basically ends in 1974 1975 and the reason is that the office of public safety is closed down by uh, act of congress in 1974 and its training police training academy the international police academy which operated in washington dc is closed down in 1975 so the reason for the office of public safety to be closed down is um attributable to I would say the anti-war movement or the peace movement and anti-imperialism more broadly. And I would say with with one reservation that I'll mention, but um I would say that the Office of Public Safety's closure should be celebrated by um anti-imperialists and abolitionists and so forth as as a as a real moment of, of success for these movements, um, grassroots movements. And basically these movements um, you know, they, it's, it's a new left activists, including people um, who, who go on to become scholars, who, like one of the people I mentioned, Mike Clare, who are doing research into the Office of Public Safety and um, finding out some, you know, relatively gory details. And there's also other um, coverage in the news media of the Office of Public Safety, Uh, particularly after one of the public safety advisors gets kidnapped and assassinated in Uruguay um, and the office of public safety gets linked to abuses of, of, of prisoners in South Vietnam. So those scandals kind of erupt into the, into the mainstream media. There are protests against the office of public safety that, that, um, you know, invoke these, these scandals. And then people like Claire and others are, are, also at the same time doing their research and feeding some of their research to um, liberal members of Congress. And so Senator James Aberesk from South Dakota is the kind of point person on shutting down the Office of Public Safety. Um, but there are there are other people in, in Congress. Of course, you know, the, the Congress during the Nixon administration. Um, toward the the latter part of of Nixon's time in office, Congress does a, a quite remarkable job of of restraining Nixon's foreign policy, not only in regards to South Vietnam, but but in other ways. And of course, you know, Nixon um, was not easily restrained, and he he of course was wily and moved in other directions. But then, ultimately, once he's out of office. Uh, you know you have investigations like the church and pike investigations into um, abuses of by intelligence agencies and so forth so all of, i see all of this as kind of of a piece the the caveat about the office of public safety getting shut down and and how successful that was as a, an effort of um, Uh, you know, led by activists in collaboration with members of Congress. The caveat is that they wrote some loopholes into the legislation. And so although the law is basically still on the books, which says that there can't be um, police assistance offered in the way that to other countries in the way that the Office of Public Safety did it, um, there were loopholes, which said that um, there were some, Areas in which police assistance could still be offered, narcotics is the most important one, and um, what this meant is that via these loopholes, uh, overseas police training and assistance resumed. Um, not not that long after the the office of public safety was shut down and also the law enforcement assistance administration plays a a role in this as well as I, as I detail in the conclusion of the book. But, um, yeah, I think that the, 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 the critiques of the office of public safety were really powerful. Um, the public safety advisors themselves, I think would argue to this day, those of them who are still around, they would argue to this day, look, our, our whole purpose was to, um, control and restrain and stamp out an international communist conspiracy. And the office of public safety was basically defeated by an international communist conspiracy of, you know, activists in the new left who were, um, who were able to, you know, sort of, they would say they were, they were able to dupe liberals in, in Congress into, you know, doing their bidding. I, of course, I don't see it that way. Um, but But nonetheless, it's it's it is it is kind of a a fascinating episode in in the history of the left in the United States that I think is, you know, deserves a little bit more attention and appreciation, both because it was a success and because it's a cautionary tale, because it seemed like a almost abolitionist success. But it also opened the door to continuation of some of the very same activities in new guises, as I as I explained in the book.
2: I will just ask you one question that we always end up end with, which is what project you might be working on now or you might want to work on. Yeah,
1: I well well just kind of along the lines of what I've just, just been saying, I'm 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 working on an article or I have been working on an article that may turn into a book that is about basically US overseas police assistance after nineteen seventy-five, um up to the present and what it what it looks like today. And it's it, you know it's 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 part of a broader um, security assistance program that uh, has you know been in the news lately because of course this this whole scandal with Ukraine um, all kind of turns on on the question of, of withholding security assistance, um, but but the the like I said the the loopholes and and the kind of workarounds in the prohibition against offering police assistance overseas today mean that it's it's highly decentralized and the authority over it is very confusing and so just even trying to kind of trace how it works, where the money is going, to how it's appropriated, all that stuff. It's, it's a very challenging effort. So just even trying to kind of map some of that out is, is one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to work on. And, you know, more generally I'm, I'm continuing to work on policing in various different guises. I and mean, one of the arguments of badges without borders is that police in the 1960s in part through their, um, collaborations across borders, uh, police develop a kind of robust institutional identity as um that is that is coherent and that they mobilize for political purposes so I, I i show how some of the arguments in in the 1960s over over whether the police should support the war on crime some of those arguments actually um pass through or, or people who, who who makes some of the arguments in favor of, 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 of police as a kind of national institution supporting a war on crime, um, th- those folks are deeply, intimately familiar with overseas police assistance. And the f- global fight against communism, I think, is a crucial ingredient for the police to develop this institutional identity. And they, they wield this identity to Garner resources um, for for police agencies. So, in some new work that I'm doing, I'm, I'm looking at how, after the 1970s up through the present, the um, police consistently advocate on their own political behalf in um, in debates around legislation, in supporting political candidates, and so forth. And and a lot of that would have been anathema. Um, before the 1960s, because of the effort to disentangle police from politics that the professionalization era entailed. Now it's kind of reversed, whereas before police professionalization meant taking police out from under the influence of, of machine politicians or whatever. Today, I would say that what we see is is politicians being under the influence of police who, who are a really strong con- constituency that's um, intimidating, even sometimes unruly. And, um, you know, the, a clear example of this is the NYPD and Mayor de Blasio and how he has just been kind of outmaneuvered um, consistently by the NYPD and particularly by the, the, the police union there under the direction of, of Pat Lynch. So, yeah, that's that's one of the things that I'm, I'm starting to, to look more, more deeply into in the, in the post-1970s period and some new work.
2: Wonderful. Well, I look forward to reading all of that. And uh, thanks for speaking with us today.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Great to speak with you.